Talent Talk radio show brought to you by People G2, a company dedicated to helping all businesses with their people-related decisions. They do that by giving clients access to the best human capital, due diligence and background checks available on prospective candidates, business partners, tenants, and more. To learn more, simply visit www.peopleg2.com. Today, we're privileged to have with us the founder and president of People G2, Chris Dyer. Hey, Chris. Good afternoon, and thank you for joining me here on the Talent Talk radio show. Again, my name is Chris Dyer, and I'll be your host for the next hour. We have a great lineup of guests today. We have two great people joining us, and well as a, a really packed schedule all year long of some some super people that I'm sure you're going to want to hear. So the way this show works um, is kind of simple, but maybe a little bit complicated, so I'll explain it. We uh, bring in a wide range of guests who care about talent management, leadership development, and company culture. And in the business world, talent really has a couple different meanings. This is how, you know, maybe how it relates to success and how really talented people achieve success. And the second is how talent relates to human resources and how HR leaders find the best candidates for their companies. Typically, we see a pretty big crossover that a lot of our guests really fill both these buckets quite well. And so this show looks to explore those two different areas, along with how talented individuals impact a company's culture. The, the guests on, on the show typically include CEOs, HR executives, entrepreneurs, and other business leaders from all different types of industries. And when I'm out at networking events or conferences, I have the privilege of meeting inspiring leaders all the time. So I created this forum to allow you to listen on our dialogue, learn some practical advice, and hopefully help you with cultivating talent, developing leaders, managing your culture, and most importantly, impacting your own career in a positive way. I want to thank those of you tuning in live here every Tuesday. If you have a question uh, for one of our guests, you can submit them via Twitter and submit them to at PeopleG2. Use that hashtag Talent Talk. My producer, Mike, will feed me the best questions, and we'll try to work them into the show as time allows. Uh, also, don't forget you can join us on the podcast on iTunes or Android. Uh, it's how most of you seem to be finding us. Uh, we have about 155,000 subscribers to that podcast feed as of today. We thank all of you who are tuning in uh, when it's convenient for you to listen to our show and listen to past shows. So let's go ahead and get to today's show. My first guest will be Ruth Ross, an engagement evangelicus um, and a founder of R Squared Resources. And then we have uh, Kanur Buhal, founder of Mindhatch. Uh, now let's go ahead and get the show started with uh, Ruth Ross. So Ruth, thank you and welcome to the show. Thanks, Chris. Appreciate the invite. So tell us a little bit about yourself and what you're currently doing uh, with your company, R-Squared Resources. Great. So I spent 30 years as a corporate HR executive, about the first half of those in New York and the last 18 in San Francisco. And I did everything kind of from soup to nuts and worked my way up and eventually became executive vice president of HR for the finance world at a major financial services company. And in 2011, made the decision to retire to become an engagement evangelist and write a book and speak around employee engagement. So for for our listeners who maybe don't know, can you share, you know, what that, what your title really means? What what does that, what does that person do in the organization? So really, 
really, if you think about an evangelist and, and kind of the definition, it's about someone who goes out and preaches about things that are going on. And in my world, I'm an expert on employee engagement, both coming from the HR perspective of having run a lot of internal things, whether it's the survey process or the feedback or taking the results and, and working on trying to engage others. But really when it took a turn for me was back in late 2010, I had what I referred to as my face in the mirror moment. When I got up, was getting dressed, looking in the mirror, getting ready to go into work, and I literally stopped, took a look, screamed, and said, when are you going to admit that you are completely dead inside and you've lost the passion for what you did for 30 years? And that was literally the moment that I diagnosed my disengagement in the workplace. And I ultimately made the decision to move on in 2011 to then work with others and talk to others who were having their own face-in-the-mirror moments around disengagement. So did anyone come running at that moment? He might have scared a few people, I guess. Well, <laughs> luckily, um, at the time, uh, my husband had already left for the day. Right. I probably said things in a little bit less radio-friendly right. manner. Right, okay. Um, but I just knew it was that epiphany moment for me. Things that I had been had inside of me, thought about, didn't really voice. It was great to finally get it out. Right, right. Well, I'm glad that you came to that moment. And for some people, that's something they never are able to do, mostly because what comes next can be pretty tough. Maybe exciting, it may be good, but it's going to be really tough. Try to find that new thing or figure out what you're going to do next. By now that you've admitted that what you were doing before isn't really working, so maybe before we get completely down that road, I know you worked for several different companies. You know, you talked about an executive HR capacity and. You know, so 2011 was sort of that, that moment for you, that, you know, looking in that mirror and, and screaming moment. So can you talk a little bit more about what led you to go out on your own? So, I mean, I understand that you, you got to this point where, okay, I'm not happy, but now to decide to go on your own is a big step. That's the entrepreneurial step. So what was some of that, that, that process look like? Well, sh- sure. And I think um, the way to look at this is when someone finally admits that they are not happy and not passionate about what they're doing, whether you call it disengagement or call it something else, what happens is there's really three things that can occur. One is that you just admit it and say, you know what, it is what it is, but I need this job, whether it's about the money, the benefits, the security, whatever that reason may be. You just say, okay, I'm going to acknowledge it. I'm going to put it out there but I really need to continue doing what I'm doing or maybe you know, quietly start to think about what's my plan. The next is that maybe you go to your manager, and I like to refer to this as job sculpting. Sometimes it's just those little things where you say, you know, if I could tweak this. So, for example, I was an HR generalist, right, running HR for the finance and corporate properties. You know, maybe if I talked to my manager and said, boy, You know, I kind of love what I do, but I've been with the same client group for a while. You know, I'd love to maybe do something else, maybe support a different group, maybe the sales organization. That's job sculpting, where it's I love my company, I love what I'm doing, but I need that spark to get me reengaged. And sometimes you look around and you say, you know what, 
it's really time for me to do something different. And that doesn't mean kind of running away tomorrow. I like to say that you want to walk towards something better instead of running for something. And so in my case, I had spent 30 years. I had, I was already having those conversations and doing the calculations about, um, you know, when can I retire When or can I do something else? Do I have this kind of spark of entrepreneurialism in me? And I really took out kind of a blank piece of paper, and on one side was, what are the deal breakers for me that I don't want in a job anymore, and what are the things that excite me? And one of the deal breakers for me was having a boss and dealing with office politics and a lot of the stuff that tends to come with corporate life sometimes at a high level. And on the other side of the page, I started to list things like wanting to speak more, wanting to write a book, um, really helping other people with this situation. And just when I looked at the page, it really sang to me and said, I can do it. I can afford to do it. It's really time to do something different. And so ultimately I made the decision to walk away and wrote the book and now I speak. So I guess I've reached all those goals on the page. Yeah. Well, uh, I'm glad that you did. And kind of goes in line with something I read on your LinkedIn profile. You wrote, the world is full of moments when people cross the line from engagement to disengagement, replacing creativity and passion with stagnation and resentment. And it sounds like when you got to that moment, you took a different path to what maybe a lot of people do. How and why do you think does that happen? How do people go down that path instead of, hey, I'm going to go do something different. I'm going to go be an entrepreneur. I'm going to take a big risk. I'm instead going to be sad and miserable and make everyone else's life hell. Why do you think people go down that path instead of maybe the one you took? You know, people are scared. I like to say that when you're in the throes of disengagement, it feels like you're in a pit of quicksand where, you know, you can feel yourself sinking and you want to look around for a lifeline or call out and you think you're speaking, but maybe nobody can hear you. There's that, there's, there's just a choking, overwhelming feeling. And let me be honest and tell you that um, I didn't just all of a sudden have that moment and say, well, that's just when I got disengaged. When I really looked in that mirror again and really analyzed what was going on, I finally admitted to myself that I had been smiling on the outside but crying on the inside for some time. I can probably tell you that it was I'm going to say it was at least 18 months, if not longer, when I really took a deep look. And honestly, that face-in-the-mirror moment made me admit something that is not often easy to say out loud, but I felt like for the last couple of months, not the full time, but the last few months, I felt like a fraud. I was collecting a really big paycheck. I was sitting in this big corner office. I managed 14 wonderful people. And I was coming into work, and everything was getting done, but it was very task-oriented. And I was checking off the boxes. And when I really took a deep look inside of myself and, and, and said, are you really giving everything both to your clients but also to your employees, I had to admit the answer was no. And that's when I really knew that I had to get out of that quicksand. And, and the other thing, to go back to your comment about the things can move at a moment and cross over, I, I like to think about this, the analogy I use, if you think about a seesaw from our childhood, right, where 
when you go onto a seesaw with another person, the intent is to try and keep things level and balanced. But what happens is one little thing can cause one person to go soaring high and the other to kind of crash and hit their butt on the ground. And you're constantly trying to find that balance. And that's what happens a lot in the workplace, that one day you may be up, and the next day you might be crashing down just because of a small series of things. And sometimes trying to find that balance every day really gets tiring. And a lot of that kind of plays back into your role, I guess, in the overall culture of the company as well. And I know that's kind of been a was a really big buzzword in 2014 when it certainly hasn't seemed to have rested at all this year. So how do you think that engagement overall, that you're, you're talking about on a very micro level, how do you think that impacts the company overall and its culture overall uh, as you have these different people in these kind of different lifespans of where they are, you know, as far as being engaged, being happy and enjoying what they're doing and feeling like, sounds like you didn't feel like you were really contributing in a way that was worth your time, what you were getting paid, what you were supposed to be doing. And so maybe you could talk about a little bit how you think that impacts the overall company's mission. Sure. So lots of, lots of good, juicy stuff in there. So let me start out by saying that I think um, culture is foundational, and it is so key to everything. And so the analogy that I like to use is that when I was about six, my parents were building a brand new house from scratch, and I remember being excited to go over and watch them pour the foundation. And when a foundation of a house is poured, if there are any cracks in that foundation, then they couldn't put on the next level. In our case, it was going to be a three-story house, right? So you can't pour on the next story and the next one if that foundation has any crack. And it's the same thing in the workplace. So if culture is cracked, and if there are, are things that foundationally are not strong, then it's impossible to layer other things on, like engagement and like recognition and just anything else that happens. And so you have to start out with a really strong corporate culture in order to get there, or everything else is just going to collapse. Yeah, I think that's a, that's a great analogy with that crack in there. I mean, no matter what you do, no matter how good the house looks, no matter what fancy things you do to it, or even what adjustments you might try to make at the next floor up to, to deal with that crack in the foundation, it's still a crack in the foundation, right? It's still going to cause it, your problems. It very much is. And, you know, when you, when you think about engagement, I think one of the biggest, there's a couple of misnomers, and maybe I can bust a few myths if that's okay with you. Let's do it. So the first thing that I'm going to bust is that while all of these variables, happiness and satisfaction and engagement are all important, they are not the same things. In fact, some of the most engaged people that I've come across in my travels on this work is that some of them are not very happy because they feel so passionately about what the company is doing and they're challenging the status quo to make things better. So while you can be both engaged and happy, they're, they're not the same thing. Um, so that's one myth that I really want to bust. The other thing is that engagement is not a program. It's not a perk. It's not a program. And it's not about throwing money at things and creating and you know putting out the best new program. Engagement is really about creating an environment where employees can do their best work, and that's where it ties back into culture, right? If you've got that great, solid foundation and culture and you're doing the right things, then engagement is going to happen. 
it's not going to happen because you've, you know, you've got 20 cafeterias and, you know, you're throwing a lot of money at people and you've got the ping pong table and all that kind of stuff. And that's not what creates engagement. So those are the two myths I'm going to bust. Are you saying that if I don't let people play ping pong all day, they won't do their best work? <laughs> no. What I'm saying is if you've created a really great environment, like I know you have with your company, and all the other things are really working, and you're really communicating and connecting and treating people with respect, then you can play ping pong all you want because the environment is what's important. Right. So no, you don't have to get rid of it. <laughs> Well, I know in your book, uh, Coming Alive, the, the journey to, to a renegade, to, excuse me, re-engage. to re-engage your life and career, my apologies. You talk about how disengagement can, can take over one's life, both at work and at home. Maybe you can uh, kind of expand a little bit on this since you've been kind of breaking some myths for us already. Sure. You know, it's interesting. When I set out to write the book, um, it was all about what happens in the workplace. You know, that's what I knew. And when I really sat down to write it and I started thinking about it, I thought, what happens at work and what happens at home, you can't compartmentalize your life. So, for example, if you're dealing with some stress at home, whether it's marital or relationship or child care or financial, you know, any of those things that all of us are affected by. When you get dressed in the morning to go into work, that stress gets dressed with you and goes into the workplace. Now, conversely, when things happen at work, you bring it home with you. Now, in my case, over the course of my career, I think I won the lottery on this, but over my 30-year career, I had four bully bosses. And bullies can take all forms, right? But it's a really prevalent thing that goes on in the workplace. So what happens is I would bring that home with me, you know, and I'd get home and, you know, my husband would be like, you know, let's go out for a lovely romantic dinner. And I'm thinking, I don't even want to eat tonight. I just want to shut the door, you know, maybe surf my iPad or you know, play a remote control roulette on the television. The last thing I feel like doing is connecting with my loved ones. And so what happens at work affects what happens at home and vice versa. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think people realize sometimes there's that, that connection. So it starts to become cyclical. One impacts the other, and then the other one gets bad, and then that one starts impacting the other one. And people can, can really start to go down a path that can be a real big problem for them and, you know, uh, really start to really hurt you in, in both of the, what people might consider your two most important areas, you know, your your your, li- your home life and your work life. So obviously companies can do a better job into helping people maybe deal with some of this stuff at work. They can't maybe do a whole lot with to deal with your, your love life, but um, certainly they can help to change some of those programs and do some of those things and have that engagement be a lasting, real part of the environment. So, as companies start to do that and make those changes, have you seen that there's been kind of good steps to allow that transformation to go correctly? And conversely, have other typical things you've seen where they just they get it wrong? Yeah, you know, it's, it's a great question because it's kind of the secret sauce. And the truth is, this stuff is not rocket science. You know, that's why I kind of busted the myth about programs and perks and throw money at it. That's not what it's really about. So I like to think about this as creating the magic of engagement and in, in, in culture. And what does it really take to do that? So if you think about what employees want out of the workplace today, they really want five things. And the first is they want to work for a company that has meaning. And that's not just millennials, right? That's any of us. If you think about, you know, I just bought 
um, a new pair of glasses, and I, w- I decided to go to Warby Parker. There's so many different vendors out there, and the reason I decided to try this new vendor is because for every pair of glasses you buy, they donate glasses to people in need. Similar to Tom's Shoes in Southern California that don't donate a pair of shoes when you buy a pair. Companies that provide meaning really get at the hearts of people. The next thing is they want alignment. People want to know where the company's going, what's their vision, what's their mission, what's their strategy. They want growth. And I don't mean the old career ladder, right? Move up, you know, be an HR assistant and specialist and manager and VP. That's long gone. But it's more about taking on different skills and zigging and zagging and creating a portfolio of skills. And people want to work for companies that allow them to have an input and a voice. Because frankly, no one knows your customers better than the people that talk to the customers on the front line. It's not the people in the C-suite. And the final thing, because hopefully you figured out I might be spelling magic here, the most important thing for me is context. So for companies that are trying to engage their people, for companies that are trying to create a great culture and environment, they need to set context and they need to tell you not just the what, but the why behind it. You know, if you think about when you ask a kid to do something and they go, why? Mm -hmm. It's no different in the workplace. People want to understand why you need them to do something. And I think if you create and work on those five steps, any company can have the magic of engagement. Well, and I think we've all had a, a few of those situations where kids seem more reasonable sometimes than the workplace-wise. But um, <laughs> Absolutely. You know, before we go here, we're almost out of time. I wanted to make sure we ask you our favorite question, which is, uh, what are you reading right now? So I have so many books on my shelf right now, but the one I'm actually reading is called The Power of Thanks. How Social Recognition Empowers Employees and Creates a Best Place to Work. And it's been written by Eric Mosley and Derek Irvine, who uh, run a company called Global Force. And the reason I'm reading this currently, besides that we actually swap books, I sent them a copy of mine, is that they're putting on a great new conference called Work Human down in Orlando, June 7th to 10th, and I'm going to be attending. And so I wanted to uh, read their book before I went to the conference. Well, it sounds like a good read, and I'm sure our listeners might want to check that one out. Uh, if people are interested in getting a hold of you, uh, working with your company, maybe having you speak, whatever that may be, what's the best way for them to do that? Sure. The easiest way is um, my website, which is very simply uh, www.ruthkross.com, or you can find me on LinkedIn or Twitter or anything else like that. Well, Ruth, it's been uh, it's gone by just lightning fast here but i really appreciate you being on the show maybe we have you come back at some point and uh we can get to all the other stuff we wanted to get to as well um but you really gave us a lot of great information today and we appreciate you being here thanks so much chris i look forward to it have a great day everyone all right up next is uh kanur buhal after this quick commercial break Welcome back to the uh, Talent Talk radio show. As a reminder, if you have any questions for our guests today, you can uh, send them to us via Twitter using the hashtag uh, Talent Talk. You can also visit TalentTalkRadio.com and listen to all the past shows. And as we mentioned before, find us on uh, iTunes, Podcasts, uh, Android. Just use that podcast app on your phone or tablet, and I'm sure you can find it. So anyways, uh, my next guest is uh, Kanur Buhal, the founder of uh, Mindhatch LLC. So uh, Kanur, welcome to the show. Hi, thank you so much for having me on. I'm really excited to be here. Well, we're excited to have you. So tell us a little bit about yourself and, of course, your company. 
Sure. Um, well, my name is Kunora Bahal. Uh, I is worth uh, repeating because it's such a, a strange name. Uh, and I'm the founder of MindHatch, which is a company that I founded um, uh, after spending a few years as a strategy and innovation consultant at Deloitte Consulting. And uh, through MindHatch, basically, we're in the business of business and customer insights um, for, you know, better better business, um, more human-centered thinking and design of solutions. So maybe you can you dive in a little bit more. So maybe... A little bit deeper here uh, on on really what is the solutions and that you know that Mindhat is really trying to, to help companies uh, achieve. Yeah, absolutely. Well, so the, there's kind of three main ways that we kind of tackle the insights piece, and when I say insights, I mean kind of qualitative, human-minded insights, as opposed to kind of very data-centric, quantitative-centric methods that we tend to rely on as businesses now. So the three methods we use really are based on the fact that we are serving humans. And we're using humans to serve them. So our staff is serving our human customers. So we do kind of three main services. The first is design thinking, which is actually a process for creative problem solving and for creating innovative solutions. And a large part of design thinking is about pursuing empathy-style research of your customers to really unearth and discover those really big nuggets of insights from your customers so that you can then be responsive to what your customers' needs, wants, emotions, et cetera, are. Uh, and another prime way that we, uh, you know, extract insights is through organizational improv training. Uh, the improv is um, kind of becoming more and more popular as a business tool um, for training staff, but then also as kind of like a ideation tool as well. Um, and so with organizational improv trainings, what MindHatch does is, you know, come in and work with a team and kind of take them through a very fun, memorable, sticky way of doing things, which is the method of improvisation, um, but to get at kind of the heart of how could we work better together? How can we collaborate better? How can we communicate better when we're kind of pursuing um, solutions for our customers? Oh, it sounds like a lot of fun. I mean... Regardless of maybe how effective it may or may not be, it just got to be fun to do improv, right? I mean, so you, oh, auto- yeah. you automatically well, have, a, yeah, yeah, and it's very effective. Um, I've been an improv comedic performer for many years now, and I definitely there's definitely a lot of benefits to your non improv, non professional life, but then certainly the professional professional life as well. Yeah, I mean, you just get people right away, might who will be engaged. So, I'm um, you know I'm uh, I'm assuming it's going to be very. Um, effective but you know i think for the average person they may not know if it's going to be effective or not but what they do know is that it's a very fun way to do the mm-hmm. exercise and you can have a lot of laughs and a lot of fun and then suddenly that will turn into a lot more effectiveness as opposed to you know looking at some consultants 933 slide powerpoint presentation yeah. <laughs> you know oh i was guilty of that when i was in in big four consulting uh, believe you me um but yeah but what you said is, is exactly right you know improv you know i, I use improv as a method and, a, and an approach to to train people in the things that we all care about you know like leadership customer service communication you know public speaking so they're all like a lot of the the skills that are always going to be necessary for success in, in a company but improv is just kind of like uh, a much more fun and therefore memorable way of doing it but the, the point of my my workshops and trainings with companies isn't to kind of get them good at doing improv because that's not your business um it's more about learning those tried and true skills but in a way that is going to be much more memorable and then to give people like positive associations and connotations with with 
behaving in the quote-unquote right ways that you want your staff to to behave in. Right. Well, I know you have quite an eclectic background, ranging from mm-hmm. strategy and operations consultant to engagement manager. Of course, we talked about the improv comedy. So how did you come to want then to start Mindhatch from, from all these kind of different places that you, you've been and are kind of, you know, had a little bit of time and, uh, and growth and development yourself? How does that all kind of play into where you are now? Yeah, and it, it's really interesting because I have certainly had several different careers uh, happily, and I really view what I'm doing right now through the mind hatch as like the, the culmination of, of every choice that I've made, however random they might have been in, in the past. Um, um, so really kind of the, the dominant theme, like looking back on it um, uh, on, on my own, is really just this like undercurrent of change. Like I've always been a very change-minded person, and even in like my earliest job, I learned very quickly that I wasn't going to be happy or performing at my best in organizations where change wasn't appreciated. And that being said, I'm really not a person who likes change for change's sake, you know, but I also um, have a, maybe a higher tolerance for risk and testing things out to see if they work and uh, have never been someone to, like, view change as, like, an automatic negative or, you know, that kind of thing. So so it took me a long time to kind of, like, find a home uh, because I was realizing that I really was, you know, very caught up in, like, how can I effectuate change, positive change, whether it's for stakeholders or clients or even it's organizationally for my peers. I was always looking for a way to kind of, you know, feel connected to impact of some kind. Yeah, and, and, you know, and I think it's interesting, The you take all of that and then you put it back into that improv component that you've been talking mm-hmm. about. Uh, maybe you could talk a little bit more about what are some of the fun things you do with that? I mean, I immediately kind of thought of that show that used to be on TV. Uh, was it Whose Line Is It Anyway? Was that the one with Drew Carey and, uh-huh. and everyone? Yeah. You know, I mean, it's like, hey, let's, uh, you know, pretend when you're having one of your average meetings and you start having people like acting out, you know, like the average meeting they're having there and people are laughing at it. Or is it something more abstract, you know, uh, that's not really so closely related to what's really happening in the company? Yeah, it's interesting. So who's on it, who's on it anyway is a fantastic kind of like um, touch point or like, you know, frame of reference for what improv is. And, and what you see in who's on it anyway are a lot of like very, very highly trained, highly skilled people um, doing games and exercises. And so in the trainings that, that I do for my, my corporate clients, um, they are very game and exercise based. Um, and I'm also a facilitator, and, and innovation facilitation is kind of a, a third service that my attached provides. And so what I do is try to make the workshops and the key takeaways and the insights, there's that word again, um, as tactical as possible. So mm-hmm. my method of doing that is by putting my facilitator hat on and structuring and guiding debriefs after every exercise to really help people, as much as I can on their own, come to realize what the applications are, how how they can maybe change things, or keep doing the same kind of good patterns of behavior and communication. Um, so I really try to guide that, so that every exercise is designed for a, an intention and a purpose, and then kind of guiding the group as a whole into discovering the applicability and why it's kind of a, a beneficial approach to use moving forward um, after the workshop itself. Yeah, and, um, and I know that you know, you've kind of mentioned that you're a lover of change and an embracer of failure. So is that kind of those two themes? Is that what you're really trying to work them through, is helping them find those areas of change and also 
maybe kind of laugh about some of the things they've failed at doing? Yeah, you know, so um, I haven't used improv for a corporate client yet, specifically around the topic of failure. Um, so of course, failure is a very, like, loaded word, and it's hard to get people to really admit to their failures. Um, but you're, you're very spot on to even ask the question, because improv requires so much failure. Like, you are failing every other second, succeeding every other second when you're on stage, and that's really just the nature of, of the game. And uh, and improv gets you really accustomed really fast to building that thick skin and, and failing, because if you're it's literally in improv, if you're not failing, you're not trying. You know, you're not doing it right if you're not if you're not at risk of failure. So it's interesting, you know, um, and so while I, I haven't yet trained uh, companies specifically around getting accustomed to failure, it kind of just comes with the territory when you're doing an improv workshop. Because when you're doing an improv workshop, um, even in the ones where I don't kind of like make the team actually do skits or actually act like anyone other than themselves, you know, everyone is suddenly very vulnerable. And, Mm -hmm. you know, within the first minute of an improv workshop, people have let down their guard and are much more vulnerable in front of each other than they ever have been before. So that kind of gets people cued and primed to kind of be more and more vulnerable as the workshop continues and then hopefully kind of establishes a tone like for the team dynamic of that, oh, this is a safe place, you know, where where I can be vulnerable and even if that means being silly or if it means being wrong, you know, it's something that we can all own and and find some some joy in. Well, I don't think people realize how important that kind of environment of safety and trust to, to for people to give sort of those very pure, honest answers. I mean, in many ways, that's what improv is all about. You just keep trying things, and then, you know, suddenly you'll kind of find something that's a little bit, a little piece of magic. Uh, it's a lot like being, I think, like a, a good comedic writer is that they probably come up with 20 or 30 ideas that are terrible, and then suddenly they get a pearl that are just, it's great. Yeah. And, and, and that's the kind of thing you need at work. You need to be able to sit in a room and, say 20 or 30 really stupid things that aren't going to work or going to work to get work yourself through that process to come up with that pearl. But I think everyone's too afraid to do that. There's not, or there's not an environment to allow that, or you're going to get judged for those first 19 things that really, you know, really sucked. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? And everyone wants to look their best and only say something that's smart and never, you know, it, it, so I think it's a really difficult thing that companies and, and sort of those little subcultures under particular managers that might really struggle with that. You talked about kind of that magic there that, some of those best companies have that magic to allow that stuff to happen because it's just a part of their process. Yeah, exactly. And then there's something that's like innately human, you know, to that. Like you kind of describe both sides of the equation. You know, there's kind of like the the rank and file employee side. You know, we we've all been there. We've all wanted to feel safe enough to pitch our idea, you know, or put something forward. You know, we, we want to do that, you know. And then on the other side of that coin is kind of the leadership or the management. And, you know, if, if you're a good leader, a good manager, like, you want people to be bringing you the best that they've got, you know. So a lot of, um, like, I'll do um, uh, exercises and workshops that are specific around yes and. And while that at heart is about, like, can be about ideation and generation and kind of adding on top of each other's ideas, a big part of the debrief that always happens in my groups is, wow, how can I do this more so that my staff feels more comfortable coming to me? Because the truth is is that once you get told no a half dozen times, 
you're less likely to bring something to your leader. Um, if you're told yes, but there's no follow-through, it's kind of the same thing as a no, as an outright no. So there is this, um, this del- really delicate balance that's achievable of kind of creating a space where people feel comfortable to come to you with their ideas or even their concerns and then kind of responding to it in an authentic way without kind of sacrificing your ability to be a leader and, you know, just because you say yes and, you know, in that approach doesn't mean that you're a yes man, you know, or yes woman and are just kind of like obeying any idea that comes to you. You know, it's just making sure that, that every idea gets its day in court, you know, before being prematurely set aside as something that's not feasible. Well, I love that you, you talk about that because that's something that I've talked about in some of the talks that I give is, you know, saying yes, how important yes is to the company. It feeds into your positivity. It feeds into the people giving you their ideas and also really feeds into helping train people how to not only think, but to think in the way in which the company really wants you to be thinking. And, Mm -hmm. you know, so if they say, hey, can we go, can we start selling, you know, bananas? Okay. And it's yes, but, or yes, and, or whatever that thing may be, you know, you need to solve these other problems first, you know, or let's talk Mm -hmm. about what these problems might be to us selling bananas. Well, you know, we're there are no bananas to buy, you know, then we, how, how do mm-hmm. we get the bananas? How, you know, there's this whole like process you can help take people through. Yeah. You as the boss may know it's impossible. You may know it's already been thought about a thousand times, but I've had instances where I've told people yes, but, and help them, you know, start to think about the things they needed to solve. And they went back and mm-hmm. solved them all. I, and yeah. I had thought it couldn't be solved. And they went back and solved them all. And we suddenly had a whole new thing we could do. And that's that's so fascinating. And, like, another thing that comes up often in, like, kind of the debrief part of my workshops is that, you know, when you, when your gut instinct or your habits, um, whether it's your gut habit or just a verbal habit of saying no first, the second we say no, we immediately try to justify the no. Mm -hmm. And it's really interesting that that really inspires kind of worst case scenario thinking. You know, and um, like by way of example, just kind of like a, a crude example, but in this exercise I've done before, um, I have people kind of plan plan their ideal vacation together in pairs. And in the first round, they kind of do a no but. Second round, they do a yes but. And then the third round, they do yes and. Um, and, uh, and in kind of observing, um, you know, a, 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 a pair do this um, last year, um, one one woman's idea was, oh, let's go to Florida on our vacation. And the person who responded said, oh, no, but we'll get skin cancer. You know, so to <laughs> right. me, that's always, like, an example of, like, we're how, how, like, saying no can really inspire worst-case scenario thinking. And it inspires us to kind of invent obstacles that may be false. Like, they may mm-hmm. not even exist. Because um, then we're suddenly caught up in trying to justify why we said no. Right. Now, it's fascinating how... Just the small change and and just one word versus another can really push the company a different direction. And then your your alteration here is maybe two words, yes, and can Mm -hmm. really take you to another place. Um, But you have to be open. As in management, you have leaders have to be open to this sort of exercise, and they have to be willing to be challenged and questioned. And and, usually, the best Mm -hmm. leaders are willing to be challenged and questioned and to be wrong and to you know, to go new places and, and explore change. And 
are, are less exciting leaders or less effective leaders or <laughs> sit and whatever they're just saying no. So I, I know you've had some opportunity to, to kind of observe some of those best leadership qualities and, and types of people. What do you really feel attributes to kind of setting them apart from the rest? Yeah, you know, um, uh, something that I'm reminded by just hearing what you just said is, you know, I- improv as kind of a tool or it's really kind of a practice. You know, it's it's not like you do a two-hour workshop and then, boom, I'm going to be a, a great improvisational leader or improvisational employee. It really is a practice in the sense that yoga or brushing your teeth twice a day is, you know. Um, and so what comes to mind is, is humility. Like, I think a, a humble leader is someone who's going to have no problem, you know, giving someone ideas, someone else's idea a fair shake, um, even though it's not their own idea. You know, a humble, a humble leader is going to be able to say, oh, I don't know the answer to that. Let's explore it. Let's, let's go discover, you know, what the answer is. So the humility comes to mind a lot for leadership and what can set people apart. And then I think also, you know, I, I've certainly worked in, in many different organizations where you can really tell quickly if it's an organization that walks the walk, you know? And I think that type of authenticity and kind of do what you say and say what you do and say and mean what you say can also really set a leader apart a great deal. Right. Yeah. Authenticity, being humble. Yeah. Those are some really important parts that it's amazing how many leaders or how many people in these leadership positions, I should say, um, aren't able to do very well. So uh, I'm, I'm sure that uh, with, with everything that you're doing, uh, you, you must be uh, always looking for that next thing or learning the next thing. <laughs> you like change so much. So I'm wondering if there's a book you're reading right now that you might share with us. Yeah, you know, so I am a very, um, I, I, I can't, I'm not going to be honest with you, I hate that you ask that question because I'm not reading anything right now and I'm so ashamed by it because I'm such a... <laughs> a book lover and um and i can't believe i'm not reading anything right at this moment which is kind of rare for me um but you know the 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 last book i did read was um a memoir by haruki murakami um it's called uh what i talk about when i talk about running uh and uh he's like a very famous uh, prolific japanese author and he wrote this memoir based entirely around his decades long love affair with running and um, and it was it's, it's great. I've read his novels um, before. I read his memoir as well. And it's interesting. I, I imagine that a lot of people you have in your show um, are currently reading you know, like business books or HR related books. I am definitely more of a novel and fiction reader. Um, as much as I really like love you know the latest greatest business books, I, I I'm very slow to get through them. Whereas something that has like a really human emotional story. I can sit down and read in like two hours and just binge, binge on it because um, it's so fascinating. So yeah, so I definitely, definitely err on the side of novels and fiction more often than not. Well, we definitely have a wide range, so and that's why we mm-hmm. ask the question, you know. And sometimes it's the business books, HR books. Mm-hmm. I would say that's maybe you know just over fifty percent, but the other fifty percent is made up of brown people say they don't read anything at all. They just read blogs or they read uh-huh. a lot of biographies. They like to learn, you know, things that are sort of history related where they're kind yeah. of learning through other people's things. It sounds like that memoir is very similar to that. Um, and then certainly a lot of, a lot of fiction in there. So whether that's an escape or whether that's uh, another way to think about 
the the human experience in a different context um, instead of you know how you're dealing with it you know on a day to day real life basis. But you know I think that it's all good, <laughs> and, and people who are engaged in reading and learning and having that experience, I think that's that's why they're in these positions of leadership and why they're helping people be their best their best selves because they have that mindset and that's why we love to ask the question because we just get so many different answers we if we just got the same you know three hr books every time we'd stop asking (laughs) we get seem to get stuff new stuff all the time yeah and it's great i think i'm definitely like um, a fan of fiction and it's so interesting like in the past uh, several months there's been a lot of a lot of things being written about the the value of things like emotional intelligence and empathy, you know, in the workplace, and it's so fascinating to start seeing studies come out that that show that a really good way to develop the capacity for empathy is by reading fiction, because mm-hmm. um, you can step inside into the shoes of a different person. And I just find that really fascinating, and like many like many things from my past that have seemed unrelated, they all kind of add up and amount to what I'm doing right now, especially with design thinking, which is a very um, empathy-driven style of, of innovation and, and research. So, Well, and I have recently been suggesting to people who really enjoy fiction, but maybe also mm-hmm. want a little bit of a business idea. There's no actual direct business book talk in the book, but you certainly understand the themes. But um, the book, The Boys in the Boat, is hands down one of the best reads as far as an overall story, and it's a true story. Um, so you may enjoy that one. It's certainly a lot of the, the themes of leadership are there and, you know, working through uh, hard times. And, and and if you know anyone who, who likes to complain that life is tough, we forget how much people went through before World War II uh, in our country and some of the incredible uh, stories of, of uh you know, just survival. But anyways, it's a great book if you're ever interested in something like that. That's great. I just wrote it down. I'm going yeah. to put it on hold at a local library. There you go. Yeah. So um, how can people get a hold of you if they're interested in learning more or possibly having you come and, you know, do one of your great uh, improv exercises with their company? Oh, okay. thanks for the opportunity to, to, to say this. Um, well, you can always email me, um, which I... Bear, forgive the 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 nuisance, but I'm going to spell it out because my name is so strange. Um, you can email me at kunor at mindhatchllc.com. That's C like cat, O-O, N like Nancy, O-O, R like Robert, at mindhatchllc.com. And then our website also is uh, mindhatchllc.com. And um, you can also contact us on the website. We're also on Twitter and, and on Facebook as well. And if you don't mind me asking, I've never heard that name before. Is there a story to that? or? Yeah, you know, it's, it's probably a, a story of superficiality. Um, it, it's, a, it's an Indian name. And uh, the story behind it, um, as much of a story as it is, is that my, my mother went to school with when she was young um, with a, a girl. And she was the prettiest girl in school, and her name was Kunur. So from the time my mom was like 12, she already knew if she ever had a daughter, she was going to name her Kunur. So um, so I have one namesake. Um, it, it is a pretty pretty unusual name, even in South, South, South Asia. Yeah, yeah, I have never heard it. But yeah, that's that's a great story. Well, we really appreciate you being on the show. I know we didn't get to everything, but uh, we definitely love to have you come back at some point and give us an update on how you're doing and continue to get more of your insights. 
Yeah, I would love that. Thank you so much for having me. This is really fun. Yeah. All right. Well, tune in live uh, next week, uh, 1 p.m. Pacific Standard Time. My guest will be uh, Erica Johnson, Director of Employee Experience for Nitro, and also Julia Gomez, founder and author of The Brandful Workforce. Until then, do what you love and show the world how talented you can be today. You've been listening to Town Talk Radio Show, brought to you by People G2.